This is exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. On March 17th, Goldman Sachs hosted the Global Investment Research Innovation Symposium at the firm's headquarters in New York. We brought together entrepreneurs and thinkers from a wide variety of fields to talk about all that's happening right now at the intersection of technology and industry. Hugo Scott Gall, who runs thematic research here at Goldman, is here to share some of the key themes that emerged from that conference. Hugo, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Hugo, why did we host this symposium here at Goldman Sachs? What, what was the point of it, and who was in the audience, who came to speak, and what did we all learn? Let me answer that with sort of why and why now. So why do we think we should do an innovation symposium? The answer is there are more and more industries being affected by disruptive change coming out of innovation. You could argue 10 years ago it was easier to see, it was easier to spot, it was limited to just maybe a small number of industries. Now we can see this is broadening out. And I think what's particularly important for uh, the people in the audience who are our clients was that the lessons learned from one industry can be applied to another industry and to another industry. So investors are having to think much more broadly about, okay, what is the industry, who's in the industry, and what are the threats to that industry? And that requires maybe a greater elasticity of thought than it did previously. And in terms of who, so we've had why, why now, in terms of who, we had a real mix. And I think this was the key attraction that we were able to get. We had some very big companies there. We had some smaller companies there. We had private companies there, startup companies there. We had uh, regulators. We had academics. We had a really interesting blend. And I think when you have a period of quite rapid change and at times discontinuous change, hearing from different people around and inside an industry becomes much more important than maybe just hearing from the standard sources of information. Hugo, let's talk about some of those threads. What were some of the common themes you heard that connect some of these disparate developments across industries? I think there were four common themes that stood out across the panels for us. The first and most consistent one, I think, is the idea of greater personalization or customization. 3D printing would be a good example. But even in our discussion on connected cars, our panelists agreed that apps and solutions that allow for greater personalization were the ones to watch out for. Another common thread was that many of the innovative solutions seen in industries are emerging as a result of a confluence of other technologies. So let me explain what I mean by that. The cost of genomics, for example, uh, is crashing. The cost of genomics testing is crashing due to advances in large-scale computing power. The IoT, the Internet of Things, is becoming a reality due to the Ethernet and cloud technology. 3D printing is becoming more viable due to progress in material technology. It goes to show that even though many of these core technologies have existed for some time, it is advances in secondary technologies that have pushed their maturation. The, the third common thread would be that some of these new technologies are, are not being adopted as fast as they could be. There are some things hindering them. For, for connected cars, it's the existing car fleet and road infrastructure. For 3D printing, it's traditional manufacturing plants. So the fourth and final point I'll make here is a little more somber. Labor came up on the losing side of most of these topics, whether it is IoT-enabled remote monitoring, a lower need for supervisors, whether it is 3D printing, merging 20 components into one, requiring fewer parts inspectors, whether it's driverless cars mandating, as the name implies, fewer drivers, or even automated financial advice requiring fewer investment advisors, Overall, we saw labor as a net loser with just a, a few, a lucky few with the right skills being beneficiaries, but worrisome for the rest of the labor pool. You talked about the development of autonomous driving technology. 
people have heard about this, maybe a lot if they listen uh, to uh, my conversation with George Lee, but where are we right now with that technology? Well, that's a very good question and one we get asked a lot. So it's worth pointing out that actually a lot of semi-autonomous capability exists today via things like adaptive cruise control, highway lane assist, blind spot detection, valet parking. These, these all exist today. But there are, there are still some important technical and legal barriers, particularly on the regulatory side, and there's also the ever, I guess, the ever-present issue of cus customer acceptance. But if you think back over the last 10 years, a lot of the things the driver does have already been ceded to technology. So we don't think there will be a big bang moment, but more of a gradual progression as, as sensors, cameras, radar get cheaper, and artificial intelligence is used to develop better planning, decision-making algorithms. So we might be heading for a situation with driverless cars similar to what happened when we explored space and tom wolf wrote about this in the right stuff he explained the clash between the astronauts who were former fighter pilots who wanted to feel like they were in control and the engineers in houston who thought they could do a better job of driving the craft and they compromised by giving the astronauts a joystick which gave them some ability to 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 drive the aircraft so Getting the balance right between the drivers who want to feel like they're in control and the engineers who may be able to design a safer and better car is going to be critical to the industry. Describe how those trends might affect the competitive landscape in the automotive industry. The key word here is software. The rising importance of software has opened the door to new participants in the space. But so far, a lot of the disruption has been in the less capital-intensive parts of the industry. But there is a fascinating debate here, I think, where, the where is the real value add? Is it going to be in software as it becomes increasingly important, or will it stay in hardware? And we think it is software that is going to trump hardware as, as cars become connected, just like another device. Drivers will, th will then expect the content experience to be seamless with the rest of their technology ecosystem. How that battle between software and hardware unfolds and the capital intensity of different parts of the car making process unfolds will be fascinating to watch. There's a shift in attitudes, particularly among uh, younger people, around car ownership. And how could the emergence of autonomous driving technology accelerate that shift in views towards car ownership? Do you see a natural compatibility with the emergence of the, the so-called sharing economy? Absolutely. It's, it's not so much autonomous driving. It's more, I would say, the emergence of much more credible alternatives to car ownership. We, we think about disruption in terms of a shift of a product's cost, capability, or convenience. And what some of the car sharing business models offer is a meaningful upgrade to convenience. And there is a virtuous circle of more users begetting more supply, and that's a deeper network and therefore lower cost. This means that access to a car is now much more attractive relative to owning a car. It is easier to access and use a car than it was previously, and therefore you don't necessarily have to own cars. And so as with other aspects of the sharing economy, it is technology that is enabling this, creating marketplaces that didn't exist before and allowing for price discovery. So here's a good stat. The average American car costs around 31,000 US dollars. It depreciates 11% immediately on purchase and sits idle 95% of the time. That, I would argue, is an obvious recipe for disruption. And so if you increase the level of utilization of the existing car fleet, then all else being equal, demand for new cars should fall off. Hugo, given the inefficiency you described in our current method of using cars and financing cars and paying for cars, will self-driving cars become the dominant mode of personal transportation in the near future, or will traditional cars continue to play a significant role in the way we live? There is no doubt 
the, the benefits from self-driving cars are great. A significant reduction in traffic deaths, less uh, CO2 emissions from less congestion. But as I said earlier, it's likely that it'll be gradual, not least because people have sunk capital into their cars, so they're not just going to hand them in. But in urban areas, uh, particularly where the infrastructure is upgraded for autonomous vehicles, adoption will be faster. So particularly if you're sitting in a jam and in the autonomous lane, it's free-flowing, that's going to make you stop and think. Our panel of experts, for, for what it's worth, thought that by 2020 there will be pockets of autonomous cars, particularly in urban areas. And by 2025, there'll be much, much greater penetration, not least because there will be by then a proliferation of models. So it's going to happen, but it's not going to be a total shift. Here at Goldman, we've been focused for a while now on the Internet of Things, or the IoT, and that refers to the connection of billions of devices to the Internet that allows them to communicate with each other in real time and with operators and manufacturers. But the Innovation Symposium focused particularly on one area where the IoT could have a profound effect, manufacturing. Hugo, tell our listeners a little bit about how manufacturing could be reshaped by the proliferation of the IoT. Sure. Well, Cisco's CEO is on record as saying that 40% of Fortune 1000 companies may not exist in five to 10 years' time if they don't adapt to the IoT, the Internet of Things. That is a dramatic statement. And that is, we think, particularly true for manufacturing. The IoT is clearly part of the next industrial revolution, and manufacturing sits right in the middle of that, given just how data-intensive it is and the complexity of devices on the factory floor. So just to size the opportunity for you a little bit, Rockwell estimates that only 15% of devices in the factory today are connected. And by our estimates, 2 trillion of the total 7 trillion IoT opportunity in 2020 will relate directly to industrials of which manufacturing is, is the lion's share. So how exactly do we see the manufacturing landscape changing? Three key ways. The first is to satisfy the constant and persistent drive to improve efficiency and cut costs. IoT has the potential to identify problems on the manufacturing floor before they happen. That is a big change, a big shift. That reduces costs and it cuts downtime. Secondly, the IoT is driving a shift in business models towards software and away from traditional cap goods equipment. That creates higher quality recurring revenue streams and greater customer stickiness. This is key. If you, you can't just make things anymore. You can't just make a bit of equipment and sell it. You have to have yourself as close to the customer as possible, and that happens via integrated software, data plus analytics. And thirdly, we believe that the IoT will change rules and definitions. It will enable companies from outside traditionally defined boundaries of an industry. So what you thought of as an industry actually probably isn't true anymore. There are going to be companies coming from outside of that space into it because they have the skills that are needed and valued. And again, that revolves around software. It's data plus analytics. When technology is added to any process, there's a heightened concern about security. How are manufacturers thinking about cybersecurity as they build out this Internet of Things capabilities inside their plants or, or, or to link them with the customer? Absolutely no doubt. Security is front and center, clearly one of the biggest challenges facing the IoT today. Increased connectivity means that hackers could find a way to shut off equipment remotely, steal data, or sabotage power delivery. And the costs of incidents like this can be huge. They can be really damaging both cost and also reputationally. So if you're not able to detect and mitigate the impact of potential cyber threats, your data, your IP, and your manufacturing processes are all at risk. Security is especially salient given the rising number of partnerships and multiple networks that have been developed. So we're seeing more and more JVs in this area. So that adds an extra layer of risk. 
So to this end, I think you're seeing many companies in the space turn to traditional cybersecurity leaders for partnerships or even actually using M&A to acquire security capabilities that they don't have. Another technology you mentioned earlier that would benefit greatly from the proliferation of the Internet of Things or the penetration of the Internet of Things into the manufacturing sector is 3D printing. Uh, like self-driving cars, 3D printing is new and used to seem like something out of science fiction, but it's here and it's real. Costs are coming down and it looks like the technology is poised to have major commercial impact. What makes 3D printing such a potentially powerful disruptive technology and how might it change the way we think about industrial manufacturing? Well, I guess the, the first thing to say is this is actually in itself is not a particularly new technology. It's been around for 30 years or so. But what's changed is that the speed and reliability of the machines has improved dramatically and brought costs down massively in the process. So it's no longer just a prototyping technology. This is let from the R&D labs into the mainstream. And so the way we think about it is that there are probably three main benefits and attractions that 3D printing enjoys versus traditional manufacturing that will, we think, have quite severe implications for traditional ways of making things. So number one, additive manufacturing builds a product from the ground up, layer by layer. That is different from the traditional way of making things or subtractive manufacturing. So in a sense, this can create less waste in the, in the manufacturing process. That clearly is valuable in a resource-constrained world. The second thing is complexity is free. So almost for the first time, you can make highly customized products for individual users. The, the geometries that can be formed using 3D printing just weren't possible under traditional manufacturing. So that means basically you can make much funkier things in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. That is different and that adds a lot to users. And third, there are products that are being created that are lighter and more complex than traditional manufacturing. So where does that matter? That matters a lot in fossil fuel intensive industries. So it is no surprise that one of the uh, early adopters of this is the aerospace industry making important joints that are lighter, stronger, uh, and also quicker to make and quicker to improve upon. And so that change in manufacturing we think is really quite a seismic one. It isn't happening everywhere and everywhere that it could happen, but it is happening in key industries and we expect uh, it to, to, to percolate outwards across more industries. So as it moves from, from other industries, what are the constraints or, or what needs to happen for 3D printing to become a dominant method of, of industrial manufacturing in the future? I think the main thing is um, it needs to become cheaper and, needs to be, and it be, needs to become faster. So mass production techniques like injection molding still have an advantage for large volume manufacturing. And the second thing I think is there needs to be investment on the material side. So 3D printing uses different materials that have different properties and they are at the moment relatively quite expensive. So there needs to be investment there so they become cheaper and more readily available. Uh, and I'd also highlight that there is probably an education element here which is actually both in terms of existing workforce needs education around 3D printing but also so do users that actually what is its capability, is it safe, is it reliable and what are the benefits. And maybe the last thing, and I think this is ongoing and has not been resolved, which is IP protection. There are probably going to need to be more stringent rules around IP protection as companies begin to open up to 3D printing. This is, can be quite an open source technology, and so protecting patent design, etc., cetera, uh, still, uh, is still a meaningful fear for quite a lot of companies. So when you think about everything you heard at the Innovation Symposium, 
and you, and you project forward in the years ahead, what, what sectors do you think could be the next to see more disruptive innovation? Well, that, that's a good question. That's one we think about a, a lot and ask ourselves. And I think there are a number of different ways to think about this. Firstly, in which industries do we see a large proportion of customers dissatisfied with the current provision of products and services? I'd argue education and healthcare could come to mind there. And both so far have been quite immune to disruption, but this could and arguably should change for both. Another way of looking at this would be to seek out the large profit pools, the new entrants. And so when we think about industries that could, could be vulnerable to attack in this way from new entrant disruptors, we think about, say, luxury goods, experiences, pharmaceuticals, all of these, I think, could be, could be vulnerable in time. And finally, where do we see, where do we, if we look at the world, what are the world's constraints and, and where do we see solutions to them? So I would argue the world has constraints around aging. How do you solve the aging process? How do you deal, particularly in the West, with aging populations? Clearly innovation is needed around there. So we think robotics, for example, is pretty interesting. How do you deal with a skills mismatch? We talked earlier about labor, but how do you reskill the population? How do you get the right skills in the right places? That's an opportunity, links back to education. Cyber security and privacy are two other areas where we think there are, there are clearly big challenges and providing solutions to both of those uh, should be richly rewarded. We like to say, and this is sort of paraphrasing Winston Churchill, that never have so few with so little capital done so much damage to so many industries. That's really saying that it's never been a better time to be a disruptor because you don't need many people, you don't need a lot of capital because, because of technology. Thank you, Hugo. You've covered an awful lot of territory for us. We appreciate your being here today. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on March 18th, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.